This week and next, I want to look at some things in Second Chronicles, and that uh, may not be a book that's super familiar to some of you, so let me just kind of give you a little bit of a background. We've finished the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Bible, then after, as you come to the end of the Pentateuch, they're preparing to go in the Promised Land, in the book of Joshua, they do go in the Promised Land, the Israelites do, and then the book of Judges, they are there in the Promised Land being ruled over by Judges, and then the period of uh, the Israel's kings begins. And First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings describes that time period. And it's written after that time period has come to a close and the people are in exile. So there's the time of the kings. There's King Saul. There's King David. Then there's David's son Solomon. Then after Solomon, the kingdom gets split into two. There's the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, in 721, 722 BC, the northern kingdom is carried away into exile. And then 586 BC, Jerusalem falls. In Jerusalem, many of the southern kingdom are in exile. And uh, in that time frame, we think that's when First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings were written. Then God in his grace brings the southern, some from the southern kingdom back into the land of Israel and that, the, the post-exile time, is when we believe that First and Second Chronicles were written. And we believe that the Chronicles were written to help God's people be encouraged. They're in a time that could potentially be very discouraging. And the Chronicles were written to remind them of God's faithfulness, his covenant promise, his love for them. So in 2 Chronicles 20, we're talking about a king named Jehoshaphat, or as I will occasionally say, Jehoshaphat. I think Jehoshaphat's the right way to say it, but all I can say is I'm from Texas and Tennessee and all sorts of places, so, and it's in Hebrew, and if you go back to the original, no, it's, that's not true, it's just my bad pronunciations. Um, we're, we're talking about this king. Now, who is this king? He's introduced to us in 2 Chronicles 17. He's a king who sets his heart to follow the Lord. God protects him. He protects his kingdom. And then in Second Chronicles 18, Jehoshaphat allies himself with King Ahab, a wicked king, and God's protection is removed from him. We see in Second uh, Chronicles 19, God tells him that, that he's, he's, he's acted, he's, he's aligned himself with those who hate God, who are wicked. And Jehoshaphat seems to repent, but as we come to Second Chronicles 20, we see that God's protection is, uh, has been removed for a moment, and there's, there's potential danger, and we see how Jehoshaphat responds. And so, we're here in Second Chronicles 20, and we're going to read the first 21 verses, Lord willing, of this passage. And so, if you're able to, if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together, reading from the English Standard Version. It says, after this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and with them some of the Mennonites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. And some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazon, Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed to fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. 
And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab, Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jeel, son of Mattaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Juriel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in, his, in, the, in holy attire as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. You may be seated. May God encourage us, strengthen us, establish us in his word. And Father, we do turn our hearts toward you. We pray that we will be able to keep our, our minds set upon you and upon your salvation that's found in your son Jesus. Strengthen us in his name this morning, we pray. Amen. Well, Second Chronicles 20 was brought to my mind, and I was thinking about it uh, when I was on vacation about a month and a half or two months ago. I was reading a book called Picture Perfect by Amy Baker. Uh, Picture Perfect, When Life Doesn't Line Up. 
And in the book, she's talking about perfectionism. And when we think of perfectionists, we think of those people who, you know, they have a bookshelf and there's the shelf and they want all the books to kind of line up a, a certain way. And, and when those books don't line up that certain way, they kind of get annoyed and frustrated. And that's, that's certainly an aspect of perfectionism, but perfectionism goes much deeper. And she gives this kind of... Uh, quiz in the book almost. It says, okay, here are some statements and see if, if these apply to you. And some of these may and some of these may not, she says, but they're all kind of indicators of a perfectionistic personality or perfectionistic heart attitude. You want to, to be the best or maybe you have high expectations. You're, you're upset whenever you or others make a mistake. You feel guilty when you try to relax you're very particular about the details of tasks. Whenever you have a performance at, at work or a school or some sort of thing you turn in, you, you focus on the weak spots of your performance. You're never satisfied with the work that you've done. You have strained relationships. You rarely experience joy. All these are, are aspects of, of perfectionism. And the problem, of course, is it's not just about the, the books on a bookshelf. This, this heart attitude manifests itself in all sorts of areas of, of life. It's, it's, it's people on the, the people shelf of your life. You want them to act a certain way. And you want your, your work to look a certain way. You want tasks to look a certain way. You have a a children bookshelf, and you want your children to kind of fit on that bookshelf in a certain way. And of course, as we think about perfectionism, we realize there's, there's some sort of heart motivation behind this, this desire that's not a godly heart motivation. For some perfectionists, it's, it's okay, I, I, I want to be able to stand before God and say, I'm worthy of your love, or I want to stand proudly before other people and say, see, I'm a person who has uh, my life together. That, that kind of is, is a motivation for why we want the bookshelf to look a certain way. And then the, the other thing that we think about is related to perfectionism in our heart is that when things don't line up the way that we want them to, we don't respond the way that we should. Because inevitably, inevitably, the people don't line up the way you want them to, right? Work doesn't go the way that you want it to. Your children don't act the way that perfect children should act. You see, the, the perfectionist is, is missing a very core truth of the gospel, potentially. We can't be good enough we can't be perfect enough. We need someone to be good for us. We need someone else to be perfect for us so we can receive his goodness and his righteousness. That's a core truth of the gospel. And so perfectionism is an idol. And like all idols, it will not ultimately bring joy. Like all idols, it will ultimately disappoint. And for the perfectionist, it is a, a hard thing when the world comes crumbling down around him or around her. And that's kind of Baker's point as she comes to the story of, of 2 Chronicles 20. It's not just the perfectionist, though, and this is what I was thinking about as I thought about this passage. It's not just the perfectionist who has his or her life crash around them. It's the prideful person. It's 
the fearful person. It's whatever person is not trusting in the Lord, that their life comes crumbling around them. In fact, all of us, even when we're trusting the Lord, face circumstances that are, are world-altering circumstances. We're going through life, and then something happens, and it's, it's traumatic, it's cataclysmic, and we have to figure out, how am I going to respond to this? It's related to what we've talked about over the last couple of weeks. It's related to Psalm 2. It's related to Psalm 40. It's related to Psalm 107. But here's kind of the main thing that I want us to think about this morning. As we think about the troubles in life that we face, here's kind of the central idea I want us to think about as we look at the life of Jehoshaphat. God graciously destroys us or brings us to the point of destruction so that he can save us. God in his love for us, in his grace toward us, brings us to a point where we can no longer be self-sufficient so that we can turn to him to receive his salvation. God in his sovereign love and care for us brings us to the, the brink of destruction. He sovereignly takes us to that point and then he sovereignly causes us to turn our hearts toward him so that we can receive salvation and deliverance in the only place possible in him in the sufficiency of his son, Jesus Christ. Now with that kind of foundation that we're thinking about. Let's, let's look at Second Chronicles 20 together, and let's be encouraged as we, we think about some things that we should do. These are some suggestions I have for you when you find yourself overwhelmed or about to be overwhelmed by life and by circumstances. Here's the first suggestion that we see based upon the text. Number one, acknowledge your fears and set your face toward God. Acknowledge your fears and set your face toward God. Remember, I mentioned that Jehoshaphat had allied himself with King Ahab. And things had not gone well for them in Second Chronicles 18. In fact, they had been utterly defeated at Ramoth-Gilead. And perhaps the nations, the, the groups surrounding Judah had realized that Judah was perhaps weak at this point. And so this, this alliance takes place between these three groups. It's a group to the, to the northeast and to the east and to the southeast. These three groups ally themselves together to fight King Jehoshaphat and Judah. And someone comes to Jehoshaphat tells him, hey, this is what's taking place. Here beyond the Dead Sea, there's these groups that are forming. And Jehoshaphat responds in a very understandable way, right? It says that he was afraid. But, but right with that fear, it's, it's almost simultaneously as it appears in the text, there's, there's fear and there's turning. There's fear and there's turning to God. Literally, it, it says that he... he gives his face to see Yahweh. He turns here to God. The response is immediate. It's knee-jerk. He turns to God. He's going to cry out to him. How do we respond when we're overwhelmed? Here in this situation, Jehoshaphat is, is told that these armies are gathering together. And, and this is not like just, hey, you might lose a battle or there's some sort of game you're going to lose. This, this has tremendous consequences. When you lose a battle or a war in the ancient Near Eastern culture, there's no international community that monitors what happens. There's going to be no international outcry about atrocities that take place in the war. Jehoshaphat realizes this. When these armies come against me, 
the likelihood is that they're going to be successful. We do not have the ability to withstand the onslaught of these armies. And whenever an army overtakes you, it means that you are going to watch people die. You're going to watch the men be tortured and crushed. You're going to see people sometimes literally skinned alive. You're going to see horrible atrocities committed against the women in the city. You're going to see children carried away from the city in captivity. You're going to see the slaughter of innocents. You're going to see people that are close to you. Jehoshaphat realized that he was going to watch the people who had been part of his inner, inner court murdered, and then he would be tortured and probably murdered as well. This is, this is not some game. This is, this is the end of the road, worst case scenario for a king in this culture to face. So what does he do? He acknowledges before God his, his fear and he turns to him. And many of you also are facing these, these big potential things that take place in the future. And you're wondering, okay, how do, how do I respond to this? I was talking to my dad um, this, this last week, and we are talking about where he is in terms of his health right now. And he had had a really difficult previous month with some of the cancer treatments that he's taking, some of the medicines. And just then at the end of the month, took some tests, and they told him, hey, this, this medicine, based upon this test, uh, the cancer has increased. It, it, the medicine has not been effective. And that's kind of one of the first times that this, this medicine hasn't been effective. And it's potentially a very bad thing. And so I, I asked him, I said, how, how are you feeling? You know, how, how do you feel emotionally about what this means? Because there's a lot of different things this can mean. It can mean there's, there's an anomaly of a test. It can mean the test was wrong. It can mean that he needs to find a, a new drug and then you need to make sure the new drug works. I mean, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of potential futures out there, right? And I said, how are you responding emotionally? What, what have you done in response to where you are right now, this, this potential life circumstance that could be overwhelming? He says, well, you know, I'm, I'm not unaware I'm not unaware of what this could mean. I'm not blindly ignoring potential outcomes of this. I'm, I'm aware of all these different outcomes. He says, but what I'm, what I'm choosing to do, you know, it could be all these things, what I'm choosing to do is what, what I always need to do. I'm not borrowing from tomorrow's trouble today. He says, I'm, and I'm trusting God. Because God's been faithful in the past, he's going to be faithful today. And I'll tell you, just from my, my personal experience, that's the response my dad has had my entire life that I've known him. Be it times where he's lost a job and laid off, when he, that we've gone through as a family kind of tough financial times, when he's had to struggle with a uh, rebellious son. I mean, he's always, always responding, you know what, I'm going I'm to trust the Lord in this. Set my heart toward him. And that's what you and I our initial response to trouble needs to be as well, right? Okay, I'm, I'm not pretending like this isn't bad. I'm not ignoring the potential disaster here, but my first response is I'm going I'm to turn my heart to the Lord here. Acknowledge fear. And I say, Daniel, is, is it wrong? Is, is fear sinful? Is, is, we know we're supposed to fear the Lord. Is, is fear of circumstances sinful? Here's, here's a couple thoughts. What we do know in Scripture is that God, God does not want us to be defeated. 
He's not going to allow his people ultimately to be defeated. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, notice the, the tension that he, that he kind of creates here. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, we're afflicted. So bad things are going to take place in our lives. We're afflicted in every way. So all sorts of bad things are going to happen to God's people. We're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're going to be afflicted, but not crushed, not ultimately defeated. We're going to be perplexed but not driven to despair. We are. We're persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. And then he says we're always carrying in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Death is at work in us but, but, but life in you. In other words, these things are going to happen but ultimately we, we know that God is going to sustain us through this and the life of Christ is going to be manifested even as we go through horrific circumstances. So here's what I would say. For a believer who is going through life and there's this life circumstance, the army is on the other side, there's this threatening of, of overwhelming forces, what do we say? Okay, um, God is not going to allow me to be defeated in this. You say, well, Daniel, then is it wrong to fear? And I would say, well, it depends on what you mean, right? You say, well, Daniel, okay, I have this, this child, and this child has this illness. Is it wrong for me to fear that this illness could, could end in, in death or, or in some sort of permanent damage? Is it wrong for me to fear that? And, and I would say, again, we have to be careful with what type of words we use. Sometimes when we, we use the word fear, what we mean is this, is I'm aware of a potential outcome and I desperately don't want that to take place. And that is absolutely biblical, right? I, I'm aware that I'm in this circumstance that could end in a certain way and I, I desperately don't want that certain thing to happen. That is not a sinful response. But where my heart can be tempted to sin is where I say, I believe that this certain thing could happen and maybe it'd be beyond God's control. Or if this certain thing happens, God is no longer good. Or if this certain thing happens, God can no longer be sovereign over my life. Or if this thing happens, I'm going to refuse to worship God and fulfill the purpose for which I was created. That's, that's where we get into sin. So I acknowledge my fear before God. I say, God, this is the circumstance that I'm in and, and I'm, I'm concerned, I'm, 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 I'm fearful and I need you and so I turn to him. Now here's the second thing we see. Number two, we affirm some truths about God as we threaten to be overwhelmed by life. And look at what happens next. It says Jehoshaphat begins to pray and he assembles people together and I want you to notice there are, there are four truths that Jehoshaphat, in this moment of crisis, affirms about God. Now, the first thing he says as he begins a prayer, O Lord, God of our fathers. The first thing that he affirms is that God is God of our fathers. Jehoshaphat is saying, this, this moment that I exist in is not the totality of God's redemptive plan. The God that I'm crying out to is a God who has proven himself faithful for millennia. This, this moment that I'm in right now is part of God's redemptive plan, but it's not the totality of God's redemptive plan. So you and I also 
can cry out to God and say, okay, God, I've been connected to you through faith in, my, in your son Jesus. I know that I am connected with Abraham. I'm connected with your people. I'm part of your covenant community. And so I, I'm, I'm praying to the God of my fathers, the God who is this broad, redemptive plan that this, this moment is a part of. And so I'm, I'm putting this, this moment in context of God's great plan of redemption. God, you're the God of my fathers. I'm affirming that truth. God is God of our fathers. Secondly, he, he affirms this. He says, God is God in heaven. God is God in heaven. He says, O Lord, our God of fathers, are you not God in heaven? And of course, the answer is, is yes. Now, what does that mean? In Scripture, when we see people talking about God in heaven, they're talking about his, his otherness. He's, he's beyond the, the confines that exist for you and for me. King Solomon as he dedicates the temple, talks about the temple and he says, God, will you indeed dwell on the earth? Heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this little tiny house that I've built. But have regard to the prayer of your servant and, and his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day. And, and, and then let your eyes be open night and day. In other words, you're, you're above the heavens. You're beyond my ability to comprehend. The universe can't contain you. And we've talked about this before. It's not like God is like so big that he fills the universe completely, but he is beyond the universe. There's, there's no aspect of the universe that he is not uh, aware of or a part of, but it's not like there's this big container called the universe that God just perfectly fits into. He's beyond even that. And yet, here's the tension, even though he's that enormous in terms of his greatness and his glory and his goodness, he's mindful of you and me, the tiny ones. The psalmist uh, puts it this way. The psalmist in Psalm 8 says, when I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? How can the universe be so enormously big and not be, still not be able to contain you? And how can you be aware of us? He's affirming some truths about God, Jehoshaphat is here. And the first truth, God, you're God of our fathers. We're part of this redemptive plan. And you are, you're the God of the heavens. You're not a God confined like we are to this, this moment. Jehoshaphat realizes there's, there's no place for me to run, but God, you're God over everything. Recently, my, my daughter was out with some, some friends for the day, and then night, and she gave me permission to, to share this, this story, and I was surprised how quickly she gave me permission until I realized that she thought the story makes me look crazy. Um, and then I told her in first service and realized, oh, she's right. Um, but parents, you'll be on my side here. Um, she was out with some friends and then, and then uh, kind of was uh, spending with time with one friend. And uh, she was going to spend the night at this friend's house. And, and just kind of, uh, it's getting late. I'm getting ready to go to bed. And I just want to make sure she had gotten back okay. And I, I pull up my stalker, um, find your friend app on uh, on the phone, which my kids know uh, we have, and I, I looked and I, I, I see that uh, they've, they've not gone home yet. They're, they're uh, headed to a, a park, and it's getting late, you know, so I, I try to do the cool dad text. Um, like, we both know that I'm looking where she is, but I text, how's it going? You know, having fun? Like, that's all I'm caring about is how much fun you're having. And uh, she texts back, yep, going well. 
uh, what you doing? Where are you headed? Uh, we both know that I know where you are. And she goes, oh, we're just hanging out at a park for a while and uh, to talk. And so I, my initial text is, oh, a park. You mean that, that place whenever per, a person says something bad they're about to do, they always end it with at the park, like at night, like, I'm going to go do drugs at the park. Uh, I'm going to go mug people at the park, you know. But that's not what I, I texted back, sounds fun, you know, something like that. But that's not, I'm a dad, right? And so I decide that what I want to do is at that moment, I don't want, I thought I wanted to go to bed, but what I really want to go do, the park was a couple blocks from our house. I want to, <laughs> no, I didn't go to the park. I thought about it, <laughs> but that was my next move. I, I thought, well, what I want to do is I want to go, I want to go read a book by a window and just um, watch out the window occasionally, you know? Because the reason Stalker uh, Find Your Friend app works is because we're bound by space and time. But I thought, well, I can kind of keep an eye on, on what happens, you know, where people are going, because they also, bad people are also bound by space and time. The problem is, and, and parents, you know this is true, as parents, we're also bound by space and time. And so even if something bad, ha- and it does happen to our children, we, we, can't, we don't have the ability in of ourselves to prevent all the bad things that happen. But here's, here's the thing. Even bad people are bound by space and time. But God is not. That's a truth we have to affirm, that, that God is, is God over the heavens. He's not bound by, he's not bound by the same things that we are. He's, he's God in heaven. And then the third thing that we affirm here, he's, he's God of our fathers. He's God in heaven. He's the God who's God over kingdoms. Verse 6 begins to, to describe this. He says um, in verse 6, in your hand, uh, you rule over the, all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. You're, you're God over all of the kingdoms. And then, there, there's no space in the universe, no molecule that's outside his providence. And then, in verses 7 through 9, he talks about the fourth thing that he affirms is God is God of his people. In other words, there's a, there's a special relationship between God and his people and God is going to love his people and care for them because his glory is connected with them and the people are affirming that. It says that they have been established by God. They've lived in this place, verse 8 says, and they've built for you in it a sanctuary for your name. This this sanctuary is dedicated to the glory of your name. And then it says, uh, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, all these things, we're going to stand before you in, in this place where your name is, and you're going to hear us, and you're going to save. Now, why would God do that? Because, as we've talked about, his glory is connected with the well-being of his people. In his grace, he has put his name upon his people, and so his glory is connected to his salvific work in their lives. Their shame would be his shame. I was talking with the family this, this past week, and I was sharing with them the story. I said, you know, guys, uh, something crazy happened to me today. I was, I was uh, at the blend, and I, I walked up to a group of people that I kind of know a little bit, and, and I, I started talking with them, 
And, you know, when you enter into a conversation that you haven't been a part of, it just, it feels a little off sometimes. And I said, uh, kind of at one point in the conversation, three thoughts went through my mind, all kind of at the same time. One, why is this so awkward? Uh, why, why is this, why is this conversation so awkward? And then the second thought is, why am I rubbing this guy's back? <laughs> And the third question was, how long have I been doing this? And, and then that answered the first question, why this was so awkward. Like, this is someone I don't even know. Like, how's it going, guys? Yeah, everything, you having a good day? You know, now as I'm telling this story, I'm like, as I was telling my, the family what happened, every person in the family had their hands over their head. And they're saying, oh, dad, oh, dad, you know. Now, why would, why, why do they care? It's not them. Apparently, um, my shame is their shame, you know. Me doing something embarrassing affects them. Now, it's, it's a much different thing with God, but the same idea. God's, God in his grace has connected himself familiarly to us, or, or his name. And Jehoshaphat says, okay, this is the truth about you. We know that ultimately you're going to deliver us. Now, that, now that's, that's what we're going to affirm and take, take comfort in. That an attack upon us is an attack upon you. That our affliction is your affliction. Do, do you believe that? That your affliction is God's affliction? That God has connected to you in that way? Here's the third thing that we need to do then. So we've acknowledged our fears. We've, we've set our face toward God. We've affirmed these truths about God. That he's the God of our fathers. That he's the, the God in heavens. That, that he is the the God who's over kingdoms, that he's the God of his people. We've affirmed those things, and then we place our fears, we place the situation we find ourselves in in the context of these truths about God. So Jehoshaphat says to God, okay, uh, God, here's what's going on. You, you know this already, but we're gonna verbalize this. So we've, this is who you are. Now, this is what the circumstances is. These, these people have, allow, have allied themselves against us. And these are people, by the way, God, that you said don't destroy. And so we didn't destroy them. But now, here they are. And we're not sure what to do. Aren't you going to execute judgment on them? We're powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. And then he says, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We're, we're trusting that you have a plan here and that your, your word will be affirmed. Now, the same is true in terms of what we do. We find ourselves overwhelmed by circumstances. And what do we do? We, we affirm truths about God, but... At the same time, at some point we have to say, okay, we don't know how you're going to work this out. But I'm going to affirm that these things are true about you and your love for us and your power. And then here's where I am. And, and God, help me put the context, help me put what I'm experiencing in context with these truths about who you are. Paul says some things that may be hard words for us. He says, don't lose heart. This is 2 Corinthians 4. Our outer self is wasting away, but our inner self is being renewed day by day. And then he, he's talking about hard circumstances, the people in Corinth and they have been going through. He says, light momentary affliction is preparing us, 
preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. He calls the circumstances are going through light momentary affliction. Now, what I've found to be true is that it's hard to put things in context. It's hard to put suffering in context of truths about God at the moment that it happens if you've never thought about it before. In other words, when I'm counseling someone, someone's going through a time where they're hurting, if they're not aware of some of these truths about God, this is a hard time to begin to teach about those truths. That means that you and I have to be prepared for suffering beforehand so we have the, in other words, Jehoshaphat doesn't say, oh man, there are these terrible people. I need, you know what? Uh, I think that God is sovereign. I think that God is the God of my fathers. I think, he, he, that's not when he begins to know those truths. He begins to know those truths beforehand. The, the suffering comes, he affirms those truths, and then he tries to put what he knows to be true in the context of what he's going through. I was walking by Kent's office uh, last week and I saw a book on his desk and so I stole it when he wasn't looking um, and then I put it back. And it's called uh, The Goodness of God that the title caught uh, my attention to. We were actually talking and uh, I saw the book and he, I stole it with permission for a few hours. The Goodness of God, Assurance of Purpose in the Midst of Suffering. The Goodness of God, Assurance of Purpose in the Midst of Suffering by Randy Alcorn. And listen to how the book begins. Evil and suffering have a way of exposing our inadequate theology. When affliction comes, a weak or nominal Christian often discovers that his faith doesn't account for it or prepare him for it. His faith has been in his church, denomination, family tradition, or in his own religious ideas, but his faith or her faith has not been in Christ. As he faces evil and suffering, he may in fact lose his faith. But that's actually a good thing, for any faith that leaves us unprepared for suffering is a false faith that deserves to be abandoned. Genuine faith will be tested by something. It will be tested by suffering. False faith will be lost the sooner the better, he writes. Believing God exists isn't the same as trusting the God who exists. If you base your faith on lack of affliction, your faith lives on the brink of extinction and will fall apart because of a frightening diagnosis or a shattering phone call. As John Piper writes, wimpy Christianity won't survive the days ahead. And then he says, unfortunately, most churches have failed to teach people to think biblically about the realities of evil and suffering. A pastor's daughter told me, I was never taught the Christian life was going to be difficult. I've discovered it is, and I wasn't ready. Our failure to teach a biblical theology of suffering leaves Christians unprepared for harsh realities. It also leaves our children vulnerable to history, philosophy, and global studies classes that raise the problems of evil and suffering while denying the Christian worldview in other words, brothers and sisters, as a community of faith, 
let's, let's prepare for suffering together. Let's affirm truths about who God is and his character and be prepared to support one another when the realities of sin and evil and suffering come crashing upon us. Which brings us to the last thing we need to be prepared to do. We need to respond with worship instead of fear. Now, as I was reading the text, I intentionally stopped at verse 21. Now, you need to know that the chapter goes on and there's deliverance, okay? But I, I intentionally didn't get to that point. We ended before the deliverance came. Because for many of you, right now, you're in a situation where you're overwhelmed and deliverance hasn't taken place yet. Now, what happens in the text? We don't have time to go into all these verses to the depth that I'd like, but there's a promise of deliverance. There's a prophecy of deliverance in verses 13 through 18. And then the, the people, the people respond with belief. They respond with belief, and then that belief manifests itself in worship. This is important, even before the deliverance comes. So in other words, there's worship as you come to the end of verse 21, but there's not deliverance until later in the chapter. There's thankfulness that precedes the salvation and deliverance. There's, there's worship. Jehoshaphat calls the people to believe in God, to believe his prophets, and then he calls them to proclaim God's steadfast love, that God's steadfast love is hesed, endures forever. Now, you and I, of course, have been promised the same deliverance. Philippians 1.6, I'm, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the, at the day of Jesus Christ. But like the people, as we come to the end of verse 21, we are a people who have not yet, some of us, who have not yet experienced the totality of God's deliverance yet. But how do we respond? We respond with worship. In the midst of every dark situation, we believe and we know that God's salvation is on its way, and so we respond in the only appropriate way possible, with worship. You see, for the perfectionist whose world comes crumbling down, who, who not only the, the books on the bookshelf get rearranged, but the entire bookshelf comes crashing down, for the perfectionist whose world does not line up the way that he or she would desire it to line up, for the prideful person whose, whose pride is exposed and who's humiliated, for all of us who our worlds come crashing down through job loss or relationship loss or whatever loss or whatever disaster looms on the horizon, for all of us, what does this mean in, in the darkness? It means that, that God is bringing us to a point where he's forcing us to recognize we do not have the ability to, to rightly respond to this. We don't have the ability to affect. And the temptation that we face in those times is to not respond with worship, but with fear or with bitterness or with anger or resentment. And God calls us, no, believe that my deliverance is coming. And as we believe that, respond in the only appropriate way with, with worship. God graciously destroys us, brings us to the brink of destruction. He destroys our pride so that he can save us, so that we can turn to his son, Jesus Christ, and receive 
salvation through the only source possible, through him and his perfection. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of your son Jesus. We thank you for the life that we can have through faith in his name. We pray that you would sustain us, that you would draw us close to you, that you would be gracious to us this morning. We pray this in his name. Amen.